it went from a project to a full passion. And I didn't see it coming, right? So this wasn't in a, like, sometimes entrepreneurs have a, man, this is brewing in my brain for years and decades, and then I'm going to go do this. This opportunity presented itself to me, and I am overwhelmingly humbled all the time to be in the role that I'm in. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallra. On today's episode of In the Thick of It, I speak with Jennifer Saltzman, founder of the Heights of Ellis County, a nonprofit near and dear to her heart that provides critical support services for victims of domestic abuse. Jennifer candidly shares the story behind starting this organization in 2018, despite having no prior nonprofit experience. She opens up about the personal lessons learned on her journey from battling self-doubt to embracing collaboration and hopeful progress. I'm moved by the passion Jennifer exudes as she discusses both the heavy weight and enduring hope central to her nonprofit's mission. Keep listening to learn from her entrepreneurial journey and for more information about how you can help her cause. Jennifer, thank you so much for driving up here and being a guest on In the Thick of It. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. First thing we like to do is just kind of get some background. So tell us, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I am originally from the Dallas area, lived south of Dallas my whole life and grew up here and went to college on the fourth side of town, go frogs. And yeah, really just married my high school sweetheart. And we started our family just south of Fort Worth and lived there for almost a decade. And my husband is a police officer and we have two boys who are now grown. I've got one in college and one in high school. And we have since moved over back on kind of the east side of the Metroplex and are south of Dallas now. Okay. Growing up, what were you like as a kid? What kinds of things were you into? Were you in sports? Were you studious? Yeah, I was not in sports. That was definitely out of my realm. I was a little, a little more reserved. I don't know if shy is the term, but kind of kept to myself. Went to public school through about middle school and then switched to private school. And that was a huge adjustment, but really significant actually in my life because it just changed my work ethic and what I needed to do and kind of helped ground me a little more. So that was really nice. And yeah. Okay. Brothers and sisters, or were you an only child? I have two older sisters and my parents are still together. They're cute as can be. And I'm the youngest of the three girls. And yeah, so they're, I think, four years older and seven years older than I am. College, went to TCU. What did you study? I went for business. When I went, I really did not know exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to pursue kind of my dad's track in life of entrepreneur business. That sounded glamorous. And then when I got there, I kind of fell in love with the marketing, branding side of things and did a little bit of focus on some supply chain management. That was really intriguing to me, the processing and management of that. And I still just love all things marketing. My brain is wired that way. So I really enjoyed that. You mentioned your dad was an entrepreneur. What was that like? What kind of work did he do? And has that had any influence on you and what you're doing today? Yeah, extreme influence. My dad is probably my most admired person, my hero, and I can't, just can't say enough. He's just such a remarkable human, and he has been an entrepreneur ever since I was born. Our family owns a cabinet company, 
And so we manufacture from raw lumber through end of the process kitchen and bath cabinetry, and we sell to builders and distributors. So my whole life, he was in business building mode. I grew up with that around me constantly. I got to see what that looked like to kind of carry the burden of being an entrepreneur and managing the new business and your family and watched him go through a bankruptcy and several recessions and um, have seen the challenges that come with that and has definitely now impacted me as an adult and what I'm doing today. It's interesting. Some of the guests we've had grew up with entrepreneurial families and and others like it was just in them. And it's interesting to see what people do with that. All right. So you studied business in college and what did you go do right after school? Well, I found out two weeks after I graduated Granted, I was married, but I was expecting. And so it thrust me into that parenthood season of life very early. My husband and I got married very early in college. We had been together over two years, married before then. And so I really did not launch out into the business world when I left college, which was the plan originally and pivoted. And I spent a good majority of the next decade or plus being a mom, staying home. My husband, like I said, is a police officer. And so really adjusting to that life of being a parent and starting this new family and adjusting to his volatile schedule. And I would do odd and end jobs here and there just really for the entertainment of it and keeping me going, encouraged and enjoying life. And it probably maybe a decade or more into parenting, I started picking up a little extra work with our family business, doing some marketing and going back to kind of my roots of schooling to be able to use some of that just for my own creative outlet and to get involved with the family business. That going all the way through college, oh, wow, I'm pregnant, was not expecting this. What was going through your mind? Like, it sounds like you really wanted to use the the things that you had learned and, and go out into the working world. It was definitely an interesting shift in direction, one that I wasn't completely derailed by because I knew I wanted to be a mom. I knew I wanted a family. I just didn't know the timing of that. The Lord knew the timing of that, and which has been great now because I'm able to do what I'm doing and my kids are at a different season of life um, at the age I'm at. And so I'm able now to do a lot more and differently than I would be if I was in a season as a new parent. And now I'm more at the kind of tail end of empty nesting stage, still being barely, you know, just over 40. So it's great. Thinking about your last semester of school, what was the dream job? What were you planning to go do right out of school? I didn't have a specific plan. I'm a fairly creative person in general. And so I've always at each stage and season of my life needed creative outlets. And so I think my hope was really to go find something that I was passionate about and get involved with marketing and branding. What I just had no idea is that would be the season of life I'm in now. It's interesting how we don't realize things that are foundational until later in life. And it it sounds like that's kind of where you're at right now. Absolutely. So true. Graduate college, have your first child, 10 years, stay-at-home mom. What happened after that 10-year mark? Yeah, so both of... Our parents, my parents and my in-laws, ended up 
locating south of Dallas together. And so it didn't exactly make sense for us to be so far away from them, having that support system. And the drive between where we lived and being closer to them was pretty similar for my husband. So we made that move. And, you know, it really just created in me the ability to step into that next season of life, if that makes sense. So that was a good move for us. And then I didn't intend on transitioning into working, starting a career. It's interesting because I didn't really have a career to go back to because I started so early, but I kind of fell into this particular job you know, life circumstances in my family have been pretty extreme. And, you know, my mom growing up had a really, really challenging childhood. And she dealt with domestic abuse issues as a child. And for me, that created a lens in life that I was the daughter of someone who had been through this type of traumatic abuse and had never processed it but it was very fluid for me. And so it was in my everyday life. It was a part of conversation and I didn't really know any different. And so, you know, moving over and getting closer to my parents and family kind of drew that in more. And I've, I've got a good close relationship with my sisters, but my oldest sister somewhere along the line finally revealed to us what they were dealing with and the domestic issue that was going on in their home And things went from bad to worse and unraveled. And really, that is where my shift in life and getting back into a career-minded work world began. And there's definitely more to the story I'll share with you, but that's kind of where that shift happened for me. It's always interesting to hear about what people do, but the why behind what they do, I think, is probably even more important. And so... We'll transition a little bit more here in just a second into what The Heights does, but I think it's safe to say that you're doing what you're doing today because of situations that have really impacted you and your family very personally. 100% accurate. Having to experience domestic abuse, even at a distance. I'm not having to firsthand go through it, but being the child of somebody who went through it, and it's not something that you just get over. And then really walking alongside my sister and her family, it was really eye-opening. What I know now is it impacts everybody equally. It doesn't matter your race or socioeconomic status. And so even in my own naive thinking, I'm, I'm like, oh, that things like this don't happen to, you know, people like us. And I mean, that's just kind of a basic common thought. And then I'm like, man, that's so not true at all. And now I'm discovering how untrue that actually is. And it it happens to anybody, everybody. It's very um, non-discriminatory, to say the least. And so I really think just that specific situation with my sister's family was so raw and so brutal and so eye-opening that there's hardly any way I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now, having walked that journey with them. So Talk a little bit more about what The Heights is and and what you do. Yeah, so The Heights is a nonprofit focused on families dealing with abuse. And it really, for lack of better terms, is a one-stop shop where these families can go and get all their resources they need in one location to help reduce how difficult 
it is, how many barriers they have to face. We did a very simple survey with some survivors in my county specific, and there was somewhere between 15 and 20 different services, locations that they would need to go to be able to get out of this situation. And that's too many. I mean, it's too difficult. It's already challenging. And so if you don't have somebody who's walking that journey with you, how do you do this? And so the Heights really is this multiple agency who's kind of bringing all of those together. The great thing I love about it is we're a part of a national alliance. So the Alliance for Hope International started in San Diego out of a district attorney's office who saw this need that these families needed long-term care, wraparound services, and they got featured on Oprah and it got seen by Georgia W. Bush and it became a presidential initiative. And out of that initiative, Texas received the first Family Justice Center in San Antonio. And then in Tarrant County, One Safe Place became the second Family Justice Center and the Heights became the third. And since then, we now have three additional Family Justice Centers in Texas and a couple more in development. And that's, it's been an amazing network to be a part of because this isn't something that Jennifer Salzman is creating. This isn't something that we're trying to figure out. This is something that the best practice that's being done around the world, because there's, I think there's at least one family justice center in about 25 different countries now. And so we're looking across the globe and saying, what is the best practice to provide a resource center that draws these services together. And so it's been really amazing to be a part of that journey, but to have that resource and that kind of tool to really help these families. We are ultimately trying to guide them to safety and hope. And how do you do that if you don't do it in this collaborative effort? It's nice to know that you're not alone. And one of the things that has come up time and time again with other guests is almost everybody has had a mentor of sorts or some kind of support system. And it sounds like you get at least one of those, if not both, with being a part of the Alliance. Yeah, absolutely. It's a wealth of mentorship resources. I don't exactly even know how I would begin to navigate without kind of having that support system. So I'm incredibly grateful. You didn't have to start from scratch. Yes. Thank goodness. Yeah. You talked about 20 different places that somebody would need to go. I got to believe that as many physical needs as people have in a situation like that that need to be met, there's a lot of emotional needs. So many, so many. We have taken on hiring a full-time licensed counselor. That's a critical component. And one of those that we could try to outsource because there's a fair amount of counselors around most communities, actually. The hard challenges are availability and affordability. And one thing that we know is when a survivor gets the courage to finally leave, A, it's the most dangerous point, and B, they can't wait. They don't need to be on a wait list. They don't need to not be able to afford it. And so that's one thing we really took on because the mental, emotional aspects of domestic abuse are huge. I would say, and this is just in my opinion, but a majority of the clients are not mentally, emotionally at a place where they even accept, acknowledge, and understand the cycle that they're in. And so for us, when we do an intake, it's an educational piece. And then once they've 
kind of seen that education, what do you do with it? How do you process that? So having a licensed counselor to talk to is critical. And ours can do both adults and children, which is nice. Play therapy, things that kids need as well. And then also we have a chaplain who does spiritual support because this is such a huge, complicated, emotional, just draining issue to have someone to fall back on, even in that sense of, I need to talk and process this even further than my counseling session. So we've been really grateful to have those resources. What other kinds of services do you guys provide? So when a client comes to the Heights, we do a full intake first. And that intake's really significant because it is that learning process. But what it also tells us, we do a risk assessment. And that is from John Hopkins University. And it's a tool that has been researched by thousands of families who have experienced domestic violence homicide and interviewing perpetrators as well as the victims' families. And it gives us an understanding of the gravity of the danger that this situation entails. And so from that, we're able to give them a safety plan. And we kind of know a little bit more insight to the risk they're dealing with. And so we tailor each one of those safety plans specific for each situation. And then we also create a service plan. And that's really your long-term trajectory. We talk about the science of hope so much at the Alliance. And we really dig into that hope is setting a goal, creating a pathway, and having the motivation to do that. Well, we're trying to come alongside in this service plan and help you create that pathway And then surround you with these services that are cheering you on to give you the motivation to help actually do it. But it has to be self-motivated. This is their story, their journey. We're just here to help. But some of the resources they can find at our center specifically, we've got a Ellis Christian Women Job Corps that is partnered with us. So any of those skills they lack, we can help fill some of those needs, giving them the tools to be able to go get a job that they need, be able to help them write a resume. You know, things like when they go to court, we have a court etiquette class that they offer to help prepare you for that. And we're actually building a mock courtroom into our center. So that way, you know, court's one of the scariest places people go. And that's not just victims. That's for advocates, law enforcement, legal professionals. And there's not really a courtroom that's like, oh yeah, here, come practice here. So for us to be able to have that space and walk alongside them is really important. The other cool thing is we have a whole salon and boutique there. So you can even go into the courtroom, practice, come back out, get made over, get a new outfit and help them build some of that confidence back. And then we go back into that courtroom and let's talk about it again, right? And so surrounding them with some support to help them. And then we even will accompany them to court. Some other services, we talked about the counseling and chaplain services, our case managers. I'm really incredibly excited. One of our, the only mental health clinic actually in Ellis County is moving on site with us, which is really, really key. I think the mental health conversation is so prevalent right now, which I appreciate because there shouldn't be a stigma to if you're struggling and when you're going through trauma, a mental emotional struggle is a natural outcome of trauma. 
it shouldn't be an added stigma, an added burden. And so for us to be able to provide that at no cost, that they can work with a mental health professional and get, if they need medication, they have that option. If they need more counseling that's specific to certain aspects of their trauma, we have that available. So I'm really grateful for that. We also are putting in some childcare areas. So that way, if we offer support group classes, we can offer childcare at the same time. How do they handle what do you do with your kids when you need to go to this training or this class? So we're gathering all those components. We've got some grants out that hopefully will add some extra things like legal services. I do have a commitment with law enforcement. That way they don't have to go to the police station. They can come to the facility and meet them. It's super scary sometimes to walk to the police station, especially for kids. So to reduce that and have that on site. One of our other partners I'm really grateful for is our local food banks have committed to putting a pantry on site. If you need food, we want you to be able to immediately go in, get that need met and leave feeling like you've got one less burden on you. Something that our county does not have today is an emergency shelter. And so that's another component of this resource center that we are going to be building an emergency shelter at an undisclosed location. But that way we can meet those services at the resource center, get all of the things they need and then get them into emergency shelter. And we have some pretty great partnerships with transitional housing for what do they do after emergency shelter? So trying to get all of those resources, as many as we can, and really my heart and mind are completely open to who needs to be there and why. We've got an organization called Soul Flight. They will walk alongside anyone dealing with substance use. We don't need to condemn or judge someone if they've turned to a substance as a coping mechanism because of the abuse and trauma they're with. We have to meet them where they're at and really help them. And so how do you do that if you don't have a program that's going to wrap around them and walk alongside? So I'm really grateful for that program as well. So I'm just trying to think of all the little things that we can combine together. I mean, we even have a, a foster pet partner. Hearts and Tales of Hope is sitting in to if a family comes to emergency shelter and they have a pet, we're not set up with a whole kennel. I would love to grow to that one day, but we can find a family who will foster their pet for a couple weeks while they're in emergency shelter until we can get them back somewhere where they can be reunited with their pet. That's an important part of your support system. And it's one that is easily kind of dismissed, but especially for kids dealing with this. You, you're changing and rocking their whole world. And so how do you reduce some of that trauma they're going through? That's really what our goal is, to continue those services as best we can. Just hearing you talk through that, I think mentally I, I knew how complex of a situation it is you're dealing with when you're trying to help somebody get out of that situation. But there are so many things I didn't even think about. Like I hadn't even thought about what happens when somebody needs a place, but they've got a pet and I would have never thought about that. The other thing that I was thinking through is I'm under the impression that a lot of people that are in these abusive situations endure it for a while before they actually go get help and helping them get out of that. Forget just the initial triage, but trying to help them get out of that. You talked about We've got the emotional side that needs to be dealt with. For some people, there's a spiritual component. There's many, many physical needs, but you got to get a job and you got to be prepared to go to court. 
What are some other things that keep people from breaking free? Yeah, I mean, what you're addressing right now is those barriers. And I don't know if you realize the statistics, but on average, it takes a survivor seven times leaving and going back before they actually leave and get out. And it's so simple to feel anybody, even myself sometimes, to feel that like, caution of judgment of like, just leave, just go. And until you're in that situation, you can't even understand the barriers and pressure. And so, I mean, financial barrier is huge. What do you do? What do you do if you've been part of the cycle of violence is intentionally manipulating and isolating. And so, so often what we find is the victim has lost their entire support system as part of the cycle of abuse and they didn't see it happen. It's just that little component of, oh, you don't need to work. You need to stay home with kids. I'm going to take care of you. It's fine. I've got this. No, you know, I don't, I don't like their influence. You shouldn't be talking to them. They cause this or that. And you start backing away from your support system. They caused rifts between you and your family. And all of a sudden, then you, so you wake up one day and without ever realizing it, You've lost your support system, you've lost your infrastructure, and you've probably lost your income already. And so then you really feel trapped. What do you do? A lot of them have their car repossessed. Well, now how do you even literally leave, physically leave, let alone how do you even afford leaving? It's so much more complex than you realize. And until you actually walk the road, It's just not something you put your mind on a lot. And I think that's really, for me, what drew me to this personally is walking alongside my sister and her family. And I mean, it was the most kind of spiritual warfare type of thing I'd ever experienced. Their divorce case took four years. I mean, it should not take four years, but every little thing that could come at our family or anyone surrounding this issue it happened. I mean, her lawyer broke his jaw the night before testifying. It postponed it another six months. And then you compound abuse with traumatic experiences in my family and how I personally really got called to this position. As part of that process, we unfortunately lost my 15-year-old nephew, and that's their middle child. They had three biological sons and had adopted two girls and nothing to do with the abuse. It was a tragic accident. But I sat in the hospital that night with this insane scene swirling around me. And I'm just like, how do families do this? Law enforcement's coming in to do an investigation. You've got perpetrator and his family because it's a child on their side as well. And they're technically not supposed to be around all these other kids. And all this is happening. And I just was like, this is too complicated. So even me, who I was not firsthand experiencing it, I was like, it feels impossible for families to navigate this. And what I didn't have the language then, but I do now, is the Lord turned me into a case manager that night and opened my eyes to how messy and complicated these issues are. And the degree and level that you have to wait in to be able to navigate out. 
And so that for me personally drew me to become the executive director of the Heights. And at that point, I didn't even see that, right? So it was just my experience, my eye opening to it. So it takes that walking through those those journeys to realize the depth of it. It's a difficult, crazy issue that you just never see coming. But it's a process, even for the people on the exterior of the situation, an emotional, a learning, an education to figure out how do you get out of this? You have to even recognize you're in it. It's just so difficult. You mentioned a statistic a minute ago that it takes seven times leaving. A few weeks back, there were some other stats that you you had shared, and I may have misremembered, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something to the effect of the rate of domestic violence is the same across race, across socioeconomics, geography. Like, it doesn't matter. The rate at which this happens is equal across the board. Yeah, you're right. It's the most eerie statistic I've ever seen of how equal domestic abuse affects society. And it does not matter. You're right. Your race, your socioeconomic status. I mean, it's so easy to think, oh, well, people who live in poverty or people who don't have this or, and it's the furthest from the truth, which makes providing services out of a resource center a little interestingly complex because you're dealing with every race. You're dealing with every socioeconomic status. And so the importance of individualizing services is critical. We literally need to meet you wherever you're at. It doesn't matter if you have nothing and have everything. You're still going through trauma and tragedy and all of these things that you need resources. You need people to help you. And so it's a very strange statistic, but it just almost creates such a humanity aspect of serving in this space because you are literally impacting everybody. And, you know, the other statistics that kind of blow my mind, you know, one in three women experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime and one in four men experience it. What we see is not many men will come forth and disclose they're experiencing it. That doesn't mean they don't need services. You know, we have to build a lot of awareness and education around it's okay to ask for help. But those are big numbers. When you think about it, the other statistic that literally unnerves me and I have a very hard time grappling with is three out of four kids repeat intimate partner violence in their lifetime. And for me, after going through the tragedy with my sister and her situation, and after losing my nephew, I'm looking at these four kids going, three out of four of you are on a trajectory to repeat intimate partner violence in your life. That's a tsunami statistic coming at us. And so part of this resource center is wading really deep into the next generation of this issue. How do we provide extremely excellent services for children who are witnessing it? Now, I will say we have an incredible child advocacy center. They're amazing and they work with those families whose kids have been directly impacted. And so we want to support them and do whatever partnering we can, but that is their specialty and we want them to be in that lane. 
what we want to make sure that we care about and cover are the kids that are witnessing that don't have a firsthand direct outcry of abuse toward them. They're still experiencing it. They're still living with it in their home. And what are the services they need? And so I've been really proud of our resource center expanding into children's programming this last year. We have several different year-round things that they can attend. And we just added our Camp Hope program. So Camp Hope America is a national program that is partnered with our alliance, our Alliance for Hope International. And so we were privileged to get a grant fund last year to do kind of a readiness program. And we spent a year learning how to provide children's services and how to take these kids to camp and wade into a very intentional programming for trauma camp. And so, you know, traditionally, I think a lot of society thinks of camp as like youth group and we went to summer camp, which is great. And those are wonderful. This camp has a lot of similarities. However, there's some really important, significant components of teaching coping skills. I mean, we do mindfulness every morning so that we are teaching practical applications for how do you calm yourself when things are out of control? What do you control? You control your breathing, your thoughts, your emotion, your anxiety. And how do you actually reduce your heart level increasing? What are those grounding techniques? How do you use your five senses to ground yourself? And then we put them in situations where we induce those anxieties. We do high adventure ropes course, zip lining, things that putting them up on a power pole that they have to try to learn to overcome. And it helps regulate that response, that trauma response, and gives them a way to do something about it for themselves. And then we do these kind of hook activities with them that really just helps us learn what are they good at? What are their strengths? Who are they? Who are they created to be? And we get to observe them over the week and use that. We go through hope heroes that are like kids. I say kids, they're young adults who have gone through trauma themselves, but have overcome those adversities. And we dig into their lives and give them some people to be inspired by, to think they're not alone. There's other people dealing with this. And then every night we gather under the stars and we really praise them and cheer them on and we give them character awards that we have seen them exhibit this week and speak that into them because we're trying to get them to set goals and create pathways and cheer them on. You've got to teach those things. And these are a lot of kids that, I don't want to say fall through the cracks, but just don't draw the attention that some other kids might. And so how do you really help them become who they are and stop that cycle, right? So how do we identify that? And so I love that there's a huge focus on digging into the next generation of this issue, because if you don't do that, we've missed it. I'm blown away at the number of different things that you do. How big is your team? Like, how do you pull this off? It's very challenging. Right now, We are there's like six of us. You start small, you dream big. You do all of that with six people. We have partner agencies. Thank goodness. We're very, very grateful for it. But yes, I mean, you know, we wear a lot of hats. As funding comes in, as we are able to grow, our team will be able to expand. But those partnerships are critical for those reasons because we couldn't do it without it. We have to have, I mean, even down to going to camp, 
thankfully we had incredible volunteers. We took 26 staff to go with 47 kids. And we partnered that with our local camp and they came to the table and helped provide staffing to run camp and meet us. So we couldn't have done it without them. It's amazing. And similar in some of our other programming, having the Job Corps, having our mental health clinic, that's bringing additional people to the cause with not necessarily being in my operating budget entirely. I do love the model for these family justice centers, our multi-agency centers, is you don't pay to play. So when a partner comes and offices with us, we're not charging them lease. We're not charging them the overhead cost, but we are expecting them to provide services at no cost to clients. So what we want is their operating budgets and their staff for all of their funding to go into services. So it's a really cool model. And like I said, I love that this isn't something I created. So it's not like, oh, I hope this works. It's like, no, this is the best practice across the world that's happening. And I can appreciate the people that have gone before and laid out this foundation of how to do this. I'm so grateful for that because, yeah, how do you start with, I mean, when we first started, there were two of us and we've now grown to six. So I'm very thankful. Hopefully in the next calendar year, we'll double that. I want to dig more into getting it started. And there was something you said a minute ago. And by the way, you've shared some deeply personal things about your family. Thank you for your vulnerability. And again, I just think that that's a powerful part of your story and why you do what you do. You talked about being in the hospital that night that you lost your your nephew. And you said something to the effect of you became a caseworker at that moment. I think you'd said earlier that your your mom was pretty open about her story. And so probably from a young age, you you knew about what she had been through. Was it ever in the back of your mind growing up or into adulthood that this is something that you might do? Never, never crossed my mind. It's very interesting how you journey through life because I think, and I think that's something that has caused me to feel passionate about building awareness is because I felt so unaware and it was so prevalent in my world. And how could I be so unaware, right? How could I be naive to this issue when my mom did experience as a child, it was very fluid language, but I just never processed anything beyond that. And so to realize how many people are impacted, it's a huge calling I don't know. It's just, it's real, it's real hard to kind of connect the two because it's almost in a way I'm like, how was I so unaware of what, what could be going on? And then I'm just so thankful at this point now that because I do have some awareness, it has helped me see people differently. It's helped me have more empathy. And I'm, I've been a fairly empathetic person my whole life, but it's caused me to go deeper and see people even differently than I had before, if that makes sense. One of our other guests also in the nonprofit world told the story about when he knew that this was what he was supposed to do. And I'm not going to get it all right, but he talked about being in this moment where the idea was just building as he was working on something. And he just knew that he was in his sweet spot and he was energized and fueled by this idea And I gather that you probably have had or have a similar feeling, like you're operating right where you're supposed to be. Yeah, I definitely have that feeling now. I think 
you know, there's been a few interesting moments in time that have given me confidence and assurance that I'm on the right path. You know, when I very first started this, our family knew we wanted to do more. And our original idea was, let's go renovate the shelter in Ellis County. We had put cabinets in several different women's centers and shelters. And that was literally just our next step of giving back. Sounds like your family has a heart of generosity. That was something that was probably ingrained in you as a kid. Yeah, definitely. That's been from my dad's leadership my whole life that I can remember. And so I'm really grateful for that. And it was interesting because I thought, you know, hey, we just moved to Ellis County. I'm trying to figure out working again. Maybe I'll take on this job of renovating. And what I began to do was get involved in the community. I spent about almost 18 months just listening and learning who's doing what, what's happening here. And it got me plugged in. And what I learned really quickly was we don't have an emergency shelter that I can even renovate. So that was shocking. And I was like, uh, so our plan's not going to work. So then our conversation turned to if we don't have one and our family has experienced this, what if we were not here as a support system? What would they have done? So then it was like, well, should we build a shelter? And so the next step of that, my husband being a law enforcement, he said, look, you got to come over to Tarrant County and see one safe place. You just come see it. And I really did not know what I was walking into, but walking in there and seeing all these wraparound services in this one building, that moment in time was very, that first step. And I say first step because I spent that entire tour going, when we hire an executive director, well, we could do this, this, this. And I chuckle now because I- Not knowing you were going to be the executive director. I did not know, but their executive director there knew it. The entire trip, she was like, this is you. This is you. You can't hire somebody. This is you. Like, it's not going to work if it's not you. You have the passion for this. You have the vision, the face to be in the community. And she saw in me what I couldn't see yet. I didn't know that. And she could see that. And now, you know, four years in, I'm starting to be able to see that in other people differently than I could have in myself. And so now I'm starting to catch where that came from. But that was a very significant turning point for me of going over there and seeing that. And then coming back to our community, coming back to my family really first and saying, yes, we need to build a shelter. But what I learned over here is if we only build a shelter, we've missed 85% of the families in need. Statistics show us that at the family justice centers, about 15% of the families need emergency shelter. So we can't ignore that. But 85% of them have somewhere that they've friends or family or they're back on their feet already, but they still need all those other services. So I was like, man, we don't want to miss the boat here. We want to do this. So then that became, okay, we're going to do this big thing. And when I finally started settling into my role and that I've got to help launch and lead this and accepting that really did not happen until we made a decision again at my dad's leadership. He said, you know, I'm willing to help be the support system for this. Put our family backing. We're going to use our family business to help get this thing going. He said, I don't want our name on it. I don't need any of that. He said, if you're willing to give your time and take on this position, 
We'll stay the course with it, but we'll only do it if the county adopts it as a pillar initiative that's going to outlast any of us. That 100 years from now, when someone in Ellis County needs shelter or needs help getting out of a situation, this organization still exists. And I was like, yeah, I agree with that. So going to the initial meeting where we gathered a diverse group of the county to sit down and launch this and getting up and launching this idea, I sat in that room and that was this point of like, wow, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And from that point on, over the last four years, there has been affirmation after affirmation that I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm in the lane I'm supposed to be in. And then it dug even deeper for me when my husband as law enforcement had an opportunity to work out of the Family Justice Center in Tarrant County. And so now today, you take my passion for building a family justice center in a community just outside of the pre-existing one in the Metroplex. And then you take my spouse, who now sits as the lieutenant there over family violence, crimes against children, human trafficking, sex offender registration, and sexual assault. And you married our passions and our world. And that for me is this like sweet spot of knowing. It's this culmination of everything. Yes, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And for more reasons than just a narrow, like, oh, yes, you're supposed to do this. But holistically, the impact on my personal family, my family at large, looking at how to change the course of my nieces and nephews and the impact of this community. So it's just, it's really cool to look back and see how I got to where I got and all those little affirmations along the way. You see some tragic situations, I'm sure. I think about doctors and nurses that work in children's cancer wards and things like that. And I just, I go, how do you do that day after day? How do you deal with tragedy and loss? And and hopefully you're not dealing with a lot of loss with the people that you're, you're caring for, but there's got to be just a ton of emotional weight on you just because of the, the evil that you see on a regular basis. How do you stay motivated? How do you keep doing it day after day? That's a great question. I think one of the significant things that happened when we started this journey is at our family business, the cabinet company, we had already made a commitment to providing chaplain services, spiritual support in that space. And when Our family approached about this, the heights and all of the complicated mess that goes along with these situations. My first request was to have chaplain services for the staff we bring on, myself included. Because I knew, especially having gone through everything with my own family, I needed that outlet and that support. And from that, It has grown into if I need to talk to our counselor, if any of our staff need to talk to our counselor, even our counselor has access to talk to the chaplain or if she needs to go counseling with other people because it is messy and complicated. I feel privileged because of my alignment with my spouse that we have each other. And then really our our faith is at core of how do we process this 
I don't know how people who don't have their faith to go back on process these things. It's difficult. And so I'm very grateful for the values and the the support system that I can go, okay, you know, he has a bigger plan and I can't carry the weight of all of this. And I think that's something I feel like I've been spiritually gifted with faith specifically. I don't worry. I don't carry mass weight. I get burdened sometimes with details and complicated of, man, we got to do this and we've got to cover that. And how are we going to do that? How are we going to fund it? What is, but in general, I don't carry a daily weight of the world, if that makes sense. And in this space, that could be real easy to carry that. I just know, even thinking about my kids and my spouse, but extending it to our clients and my staff, they're his children first. And he cares more about them than I possibly could, even though I think I care so much. And so I remember that. I remind myself often, there's a creator who cares so much more and you don't have to carry all this burden alone. It's okay. And the other component of that that I really love is I'm in this incredible, sweet network of serving professionals in my community. Ellis County has just a breadth of amazing amazing people who serve. And I could not be more grateful that even though, you know, yes, we have gaps we have to overcome and yes, there's funding challenges and all these things, we have some really cool support systems within our serving community. I don't know if that's true in other communities. I really don't know. I mean, there's an entire nonprofit called Mission Matters in Ellis County that serves the nonprofit community. And so we just had a meeting where they literally spent and did a training session on us on tips of how to handle your email. And then they spent an entire training session on foxhole fatigue and how do you handle this? And you're in a room with everybody else who's serving and you're working with them day in, day out, week after week. And you're both possibly feeling fatigued, but you then have each other. And so I really feel privileged to be in the community I'm in and the care that's wrapped around the people who serve. Going back again to that moment when you knew that this was the direction that you were headed in, it sounds like the initial vision was a project, maybe. Let's go rehabilitate this center. And it turns out it didn't exist. Did you ever, and maybe you already said it, maybe it was walking through the other facility, but like between then and that initial moment, was there a point where you thought, okay, I think I could see myself actually building this and starting this thing and running with it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're exactly right. It went from a project to a full passion. I mean, this is, this is zero to hunt to 100, like, overnight. Yeah, and I didn't see it coming, right? So this wasn't in a, like, sometimes entrepreneurs have a, man, this is brewing in my brain for years and decades, and then I'm going to go do this. This opportunity presented itself to me, and I am overwhelmingly humbled all the time to be in the role that I'm in. But there is absolutely a turning point, and I don't know that there's a specific point in time, but there's definitely a period of time that there was a transition from this dream and idea, and it was probably after we met with the 
county and got this like, yes, we're going to support you. And it took a little while to sink in. And I think that all of a sudden, everything I had spent the last 18 months, two years doing, I finally accepted that role personally and took the passion personally. Not that I didn't have that, but it triggered and ignited something different. And you can definitely tell now, I mean, the network that I'm privileged to have in the community with our business owners, our other nonprofits, our colleges, our officials, there's no way I would have this position if not for, you know, the support behind it, but that turning point where it becomes this passion project as opposed to this one point in time, I'm going to build this thing. This is something that I am hearing feedback being given to me over and over again as the kind of representative or the face of this, that people are coming alongside this because they see the buy-in. It's not a, oh, yeah, I'm going to get this done and then sell it off, or I'm going to create this and then be done with it. I mean, I have no idea how long I'll be the executive director. Hopefully we'll grow and maybe I can backfill myself. But what I know is I'm not walking away from it. Even if someone else fills some specific role, I mean, man, if I'm dreaming big, I want to create more family justice centers across the state of Texas and help them get to where we are now in a shorter time. (laughs) You know, how do we duplicate this? Because it can meet more needs around the state. And I'm like, that would be amazing. What were some of the biggest hurdles that you had in trying to get this started? Man, if I'm critically looking within, I'm probably one of the biggest hurdles. What do you mean by that? My own lack of confidence in myself. I have never seen myself in this role. And it's been a process to adjust. It's a mental, emotional process for me to kind of evolve into somebody different. It's an adjustment for my family. And I think, you know, I held myself back a little bit on the early on side of it going, who are you? you've never started a nonprofit, you've never run an organization, you've never been in charge of people and staff and bringing this together. Oh, you're going to get in front of all these city officials and make this kind of ask. And so I think for me, that was one of those barriers. I think some other big things is just learning systems. There's things you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And so having to ask the questions And I think it's been incredibly important along the way to stay humble and just continue to ask and not assume and not. And those have been some of the biggest strides of successes is something my dad taught me very early on. And I think is another one of my strengths is resourcing. I don't have to do it all. I have incredible people and I know how to utilize those talents, those gifts and let go of the micromanaging of all of those. I can't do what my operations director does. It's not possible. Were you able to delegate from day one or was that something you had to learn to let go and and give things up? I think I feel pretty privileged that I had not not a big struggle delegating. And I think that's just because kind of a combination of coming from not so confident but then having so a little weak in that area, but having a huge strength and resourcing, it helped balance that. And so I knew that there were key players 
key people roles that I needed to bring to the table. And I don't have a problem surrendering some of those. You know, you've got to be careful. So that's something I'm cautious about. But I've learned from both my dad and now many others in my community how to surround myself with extremely wise counsel. And so as I'm making these decisions, again, none of this is Jennifer Salzman's doing this. I don't function that way. That for me is, I mean, I can make decisions, don't get me wrong. But when I'm talking about big picture, this is looking holistically across serving our county. I'm surrounding myself with a tremendous amount of strength from our community. My board is 30 people who are very invested, but all have the alignment and passion to serve. And so then when I can go to do a handful of them and say, what are your thoughts on this? How do you think, you know, what about this person for this role? What about this partner to fill this? Is that I'm feeling this way. What do you guys think? And so I've been very, very privileged to have really strong counsel around me that's helping me not feel that I have to have it all. You know, I don't have to do all of it. I can give a lot of that away. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, I can pretty much guarantee you're not. And it's refreshing to see a leader that knows that and decides and consciously decides to seek help from from people outside. Clearly, that has been a key to your success. What are some of those other things that you look back on and go, oh, my gosh, you know, if we didn't do this, we didn't have this, that we wouldn't be where we are today? Oh, man, there's so many of those. I mean, those key people are the backbone of this. It would not have happened without there's, I mean, and it's more than a handful, which I'm so blessed to say that there are so many amazing people that have decided that they too are going to take on this passion. I mean, I think of the chair of my board and seeing even just the shift in him, you know, we asked him to step into this and join us to create this legacy and help launch this thing. And his initial yes, he'll tell you, was because my dad asked and the relationship they had. And they're somewhere along the journey. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to ask him. I don't know where it changed for him, but it was apparent that the project we had asked him became a passion. And I have seen that happen over and over again with the key people that are helping. And I think that that has been the game changer for this to launch. I don't know any other nonprofit that has hurdled as much buy-in, as much build-up and getting to where we are in such a condensed amount of time. And what year did you start the organization? That's a great question. I started the role in about the end of 2018, but we didn't provide services until about the beginning of 2020. And of course, mind you, we're in COVID years. So that was very interesting, which was a little bit of a silver lining because we were able to start virtual. And so we've been able to phase into operating so we could start really small and dream really big. And what did that look like? And even we were, I haven't even talked about any of this, but we were going to build a 30,000 square foot building. We were going big or go home. And the Lord said, hold up, (laughs) you've got to step into this. And we were given an opportunity to shift and pivot. And now we've been blessed with this incredible facility 
but it's giving us the ability to phase in. And so we're growing at a more realistic pace. And so I'm really appreciative of that as well. You talked earlier about the self-doubt. Were there any specific fears that you had? I think just really circling around feeling inadequate or feeling unprepared, having gone to business school 20-something years ago and being a mom. You know, I was just like, my brain went into this like, I don't know if you can do that. And it's very interesting because it gives me a unique lens to connect to clients who, for whatever reason in their cycle, have had some kind of distance from becoming something that they need to become and having some independence. And and so I can kind of see the apprehension of like, how do I get my feet under me? How do I take those next steps? And I had a lot of that personally, just, I'm just a mom. I don't know how to get in front of people and speak. And early on, I would stumble through that. I mean, I still get nervous speaking, but we've got a large event coming up and I feel very prepared that I can speak at that event. I'm not freaking out about it. But at the beginning, I was panicked. And so I think that component of self-doubt of like, oh, I don't know if you can do this. But it also helps me relate to clients because I'm like, you know, you can do things that you think are impossible right now in your mind. You may be so overwhelmed and this may be so like beyond what you can fathom. But really what we teach, this science of hope of having this goal and having a pathway and having the motivation, that's exactly their journey, my own personal journey. You think about that, it's like, I had a goal. You know, I'm on a, my goal. I'm walking the path and I have these amazing people cheering me on. So I just love that I have that kind of relating to people with my own personal journey. Has there been anything that you tried that didn't work out like you expected it to? I mean, you have bumps in the road. There's nothing like looming big that I'm like, man, we totally went the wrong direction. And I think I can attribute that to that sourcing, having a national alliance, having a monthly director call with these incredible people from across everywhere, you know, around the world. But even in the States, I can pick up a phone call and say, how are you doing this? What are you doing here? Has saved me from a lot of those hurdles. And I think too, I don't carry a kind of a, I got to figure this out, or I need to go down this path, or I really think this, you might be saying that, but no, I really got to try this. So we haven't had too many adjustments, a few, but nothing huge major. So I'm going to count that a blessing. (laughs) For sure. That aspect of your story is very unique and be very grateful for that. Today, so you've been at this for, I guess, five years now from 2018 till now. What do you enjoy the most and what are the parts of the job that you wish could just magically disappear? I think the creating aspect of this is limitless. And I I love that. What else can we think of that helps provide better services, helps create greater access, helps more people, helps expand funding? All of those things, that is my sweet spot of how do I create in this space? Even down to the small details, one of the things I just came across was be inventive with hospitality. And I was like, huh, 
yes, how do I create in my building extra points of extra hospitality so people feel, you know, comfortable and welcome? And so that is really exciting to me. I think on the flip side of it, the weight of this issue is really heavy and the hurt that you have to go through. And I think that because I am a very empathetic person, that's the hardest probably component for me is I can't change, fix. I can wait in and be there and empathize with you, but it's their journey. It's their decisions. It's their choice. And so that can hurt real bad. So that's really hard for me sometimes to deal with. And then there's the other part of my job that I really is really challenging is lack of funding, lack of resources. What do you do when you can't fund that, but you still got to do it? What do you do? It's difficult. It's super difficult. I mean, you reach out to the other incredible people and, and reach out to that network and cast those nets and I need help. And then sometimes you just bend over backwards and do things you shouldn't do to create a new pathway. And I think that that's something, you know, we're having to wade into a little bit being on the early side, the development side of this is there's some sacrifices being made by myself and staff that hopefully is paving a, argument's not a good word, (laughs) laying out a foundation of need that is showing why we need certain funding. We need more positions. We need more help because we can't meet the need that's there. How do you do that? And so it's difficult. There's a lot of sacrifice happening on the front side of this, developing this organization that hopefully will settle down and smooth out on the other end. I personally have a really hard time shutting work off. I get home at the end of the day and my wife will attest to this. There have been many times I've gotten better about it over the years, but she'll wave her hand in front of my face at at the dinner table and, hey, are you actually here? Do you mentally bring your work home with you? I mean, I have to, to a lot of extents. I try not to. And I think I would say less mental on the client side because I have a great team who can help relieve some of that. And so I'm so thankful for that. I carry a lot more on the executive role of development in the mental side that I carry home. I think the other challenging aspect of what comes home is there's six of us. And so the buck stops here with me. I can't ask my staff to work nights and weekends. And I mean, they step in over and above their jobs all the time, all the time they do. But I try very hard to take that next bigger step that I'm even asking them. And so if something's needed over the weekend, something's needed in an off hour, I'm going to tell them direct that to me right now. And so that's where it's really hard because essentially I'm on call 24-7 and I'm, I'm finding that we're stepping into more and more of that need. So I'm prayerfully sitting on, I'm hoping there's some funding around the corner that'll help us expand to some of that 24-7 support structure. But that's hard. That's hard. And I mean, you're dealing with people's lives. So that's where it gets really tricky is you've got what we know is when they decide to leave is the most dangerous. And so when you get that call that they've already left, 
and you weren't a part of any of the pre-stuff or whatever, you're just, the point in time you're entering is when they left. You know, A, it's the most dangerous, and B, it doesn't matter what hour it is. They still need help. And so it's like, everything has to switch back to work, and we need to put them in a hotel just till we can triage to get to them tomorrow morning at daylight, or whatever that circumstance is. And so that's hard for me to shut off. When somebody's in crisis, you can't just go, my next opening is next Tuesday at uh, 10 a.m. Does that work for you? No, you've got you've to jump on it right then. Yes. And we will expand to a 24-hour facility. And so some of that infrastructure will naturally come, not 100%, but some of it will come, but we're not there yet today. I hope we're not too far from that. But in the meantime, kind of building this, that's what it it falls back to is somebody has to step in the gap no matter what and say, I'm going to take this on. And that's really the position I've been called to. And that's challenging. That's really challenging. That's a, a challenge of every entrepreneur. I feel like I have witnessed in my small sphere of the world, but learning from others, I think that's a similar starting challenge is everything falls back to you and you have to handle things. So I'm hopeful we'll be able to, you know, grow and expand more and it won't so much come back into my home life and get a little more distance there. If somebody came to you today and said, I'm thinking about starting a nonprofit, here's my idea. This is what I want to go do. What advice would you give to them? How would you help them validate that the idea is is something they should pursue? I don't know if this would be the advice they want to hear, but I think my first question would be, is there anybody in your community in that space? Because if there is, don't start from scratch. Go connect up and partner. If there's not, then it's really digging into the why, the how. And now knowing what I've learned and know, I would absolutely encourage them, don't just circle this one concept and idea because you don't want to, in the nonprofit world, the death of that is a siloed organization. And so as a startup, if you can start thinking collaborative effort from the beginning, before you ever start it, you're way ahead of the game. If you try to like, I'm going to build this, create this, this is going to be my baby. Then all of a sudden, when you meet other nonprofits or you get in your community, there's a little challenge to navigating like, well, wait a minute, we're after the same funding. There's some hurdles you have to go there. So those would be my initial reactions is make sure that there's nobody in that space or somewhere similar. And where can you partner? Who can you collaborate with? And then really answering those tough questions. Is this a service that, is this something that is a needed gap, a necessary or is this something that's kind of you're pursuing because you're wanting to pursue something? Can you figure out a way to harness your passion and your efforts in some great way? What you just said made me think about you really have to kind of check your motivations. Why is it you want to do this? And if there is somebody in the community that is providing this and you don't want to partner with them, are you trying to make a name for yourself? Like what is actually driving you to do this? Yeah, it's a humbling set of internal evaluation of what am I holding on to? And I think I find myself often saying to many people, my brain 
is constantly thinking, what does the client, the victim, the survivor need? Not what do I want to do or what organizations do I want or what things would I like to see? What services would I like? What does that person, because nonprofits are serving, what does that person need? And then how do we wade into that and support an infrastructure around that? So that's where this multi-agency, the lens of like putting yourself in those shoes and trying to look completely around and go, what are those barriers? What are the challenges? What do we need in this space? And that's where we want to put all of our efforts. If you were starting this all over again, knowing what you know now, or maybe thinking about this different when you decide to go open that next one, what would you do different? I think there's some hurdling of strategy I would do different. Kind of what I was just referring to of getting connected to collaborative partners, I would do that more strategically quicker on the front side. I spent a lot of my beginning trying to build infrastructure for a nonprofit, which is critical. You still have to do that. And I had a great operations person helping me with that. And so I could have easily taken a little sidestep and worked a little quicker on the collaborative effort in the community. And I would have gotten to where I am today sooner. That would have been really helpful. One thing that I've done strategically is document a timeline of who we met with, when, how, where. And so then I am able to look back and go, it's really critical to get to know this group of people. And so now I know kind of some of the political climate of how things work. How does policy work? How does legislation and the rules and regulations around things? And so that's been really helpful to learn. So if I duplicate this again, which I hope I have that privilege, then I'll know some of those things and I can kind of expedite to those a little quicker. Part of my story with my business involves a phone call that changed the trajectory of the organization. And I tell people it's the happiest accident of running this whole thing. You talked about that timeline and that got me thinking about that. Are there some points on that timeline that you look at and go, man, I didn't realize it in the moment, but that was a pivotal, pivotal conversation, a pivotal event in this. Yeah, there's been several of those. I think probably the most significant one was that first county meeting where we had asked the guy who is the chair of our board. He had kind of a, a really incredible network of influence in his life, his career. And so my dad knew that and knew he was the right person for us to go get a diverse group of leadership to the table. And that's the most critical component that I had no idea was happening. My dad knew it, but I just, I was just, oh yeah, this is great. We're going to go, you know, present this idea. But the strategy behind having the right people in the room to present the idea and to have the buy-in that's probably the most significant point in time because we started our board from that and almost all of our, I think there were probably maybe somewhere between 15 and 20 from that original meeting who still sit on my board today. And those are incredible people. So there's been a few of those. And then there's some really interesting strategic things I've learned in relationships due to the nature of my nonprofit, working with law enforcement in the court system of getting correctly connected with your legal and your law enforcement and 
those particular relationships, if that makes sense. So those are very, very critical to this component. Earlier, when you talked about your family saying, we're going to, we're going to go all in. This is what we're going to do. We want this to outlive us a hundred years from now. We want this to still be here. I am glad that people like you are doing what you're doing, but I hate that you have to exist in the first place. Do you see a path to solving this problem or is this something that is going to be with us from here on out? Unfortunately, the answer is it's something that's with us. I don't see it without. However, I do see the path, this model, this family justice center, wraparound services, multi-agencies, absolutely gives me hope to a path where a 75% statistic of the next generation going to repeat this, that can be reduced. I have tremendous hope that we can set those goals, create those pathways and help these families get motivated to break those cycles. And so I don't think we're going to move into a space where it's not needed, but I sure hope we move into a space where it's needed less, there's less severity. Can we help families sooner in the cycle and eradicate the homicides around domestic abuse and violence? That I can see hope for reduction of those homicides. So there's work to be done. I don't think it's going away. I agree. I hate that these are services needed. I hate that we have to deal with child abuse and we have to deal with elder abuse and sexual assaults and all of these things, but those supports around them are so important. What's next? Man, we are moving into our new campus. So that is next on our horizon. We are expanding, which is really great. We have these incredible partnerships and they are virtually all there and happening, but to co-locate, move in one campus, put it all under one roof to see the magic happen of clients able to come somewhere and meet with multiple agencies and physically reduce those barriers. That's the next step for us. Shortly after is getting our shelter, 24-hour shelter opened. And that turns us over into that 24-hour space of care. That's a huge next step for us. I really hope that's a 2024 step. That would be a huge goal for our organization to get there. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that'll happen. But those are our on the horizon. If somebody wants to get involved, if somebody wants to help support in some way, what what do they need to do? Yeah, we have several ways you can interact with us. Our main is our website. It's www.theheightsellescounty.org. And we have a Facebook page. You look up The Heights Ellis County. We're also on Instagram. There's a really easy way from all of those social platforms to send us a message. That email will go directly to me and I can get you plugged in. There's our phone numbers on there. You'll be able to get all the information. We have some great videos. We've got a video of our survivors, a video from camp with our kids to really see firsthand what is actually happening. It would be amazing to get people to go look at it, get involved. We obviously rely on donations. We're kind of diversely funded So we're not exclusive donations only. We work with state and federal funding as well as foundational grants and things. But the community at large is really our biggest support 
And so there's a way to donate on there. There's a way to volunteer, send us a message for that. And we've got some really cool upcoming stuff. So we would love for anybody to get involved. For people that are in other parts of the country that want to give of their time, is there a central place where they can find other family justice centers throughout the the country? Yeah, I love this question. So the Alliance for Hope International, if you'll just Google Alliance for Hope International, will take you to that national network. And it is worldwide. I would absolutely recommend, you know, we need more of these. They're so, so vital. There's a lot out there, but there's not enough. And so if you can go there and kind of research what's close to you and how to get involved, that would be amazing. Is there anything we didn't cover that you would hope to talk about? I think probably the most significant thing for me to cover is realizing that with the prevalence of this issue, the chance that somebody's listening and dealing with this is real. And I would just encourage that even though this is a personal private issue, there are people who want to help and to have that courage to seek help, you know, whether it's through my organization or reaching out to someone local, there are people who want to help and please reach out. Jennifer, thank you again for coming on, sharing your story, being vulnerable, and more importantly, thank you for what you're doing about it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was Jennifer Saltzman, founder and executive director of the Heights of Ellis County. To learn more about how you can support this cause, visit theheightsellescounty.org. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 